0: In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Those verses 1 through 5 of John 1, which is the scripture that I'm going to be basing today's uh, lesson on. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. I hope you're doing well and are preparing to receive Christ anew in the incarnation, the celebration that we know is Christmas. Um, as many of you know, it's been a difficult year in, in our lives. Uh, it, you know, something happened that, that we would never ever have hoped for or wished for. I mean, last Christmas, Uh, was probably the greatest Christmas celebration of joy in my heart that I've ever experienced in my life because my son had had a a traumatic brain injury in March of of 2021, and uh, no one expected him to recover except for me and Suzanne. Uh, We believe that God promised us that from the beginning, and miraculously, he was utterly healed. Um, there, There were some uh, seizures that he was having that that was the only actual um, sort of continuing issue after that traumatic brain injury so nine months after his fall uh, and, and the day that we thought we were going to lose him uh, he was with us and so we celebrated last Christmas with great joy and gladness in what God had done for us we had no earthly idea that three and a half months later we'd lose him didn't have any earthly idea that was coming and it came like a bolt out of the blue when it happened, there was no indication that anything like that might happen. We still, to this day, don't know. We're waiting for an autopsy report to give us some answers to how that happened. But through it all, our faith is strong as we come to this Christmas this year. So, so we, we come with the same rejoicing that God healed Will um, because He also saved Will. During that year, He came to know the Lord in a different way, in a new way, in a fresh way just like I had done when I was 32 years old. I had wandered away from the Lord, and, and gloriously and miraculously, he, he called me back to himself through the revelation at Sinai, actually. When I read his name, Yahweh, I am. I realized that the one I'm running from was, was not someone I could run from, and then I, I was confronted with that reality and had to deal with it. In, in that, that uh, year that Will got, God saved him in the same way that he saved me. So uh, I'm very thankful for that because now he has possession of what I long for. He, has in the pre- he celebrates this Christmas, as it were, in, in the presence of the living God with Jesus himself. And, and in that I rejoice, even though there's a pain of not having him with us. I want you to understand that, that our rejoicing is not diminished because we know What God did, so I want you to understand that. As I begin through this journey that we're going to take together today, um, I I want you to understand that. And and for those who don't know that, I I want to give you hope and give you strength because God is my hope and my strength in all things. And and the sermon is intended to tell you why that is and why the incarnation matters so much. And so it's this: the story of the Bible is not—it's a very simple one in some ways. It recognizes right at the outset the world isn't as it should be. It's chaotic on many levels, and suffering and death shouldn't be here the way they are. Men in their late 20s shouldn't die mysteriously. The Bible takes that understanding that the world isn't as it should be, and we all know it very seriously, and it validates that. It's, it, takes, it takes that into account right off the bat. The world is a messed up place. It's not the way it should be. But what it says is that it was created in perfection by a God who is both good and great. You can have one without the other. You can have a great God without being a good God. You can have a God who's great enough to create, but, but not good, that could create this world. Or you could have a good God who's not great enough to create it, which means there's another God beyond and behind that. And that's what a lot of religions believe. They believe in one of those two things. This was the first story of one God, who is only properly called God, who creates. Every other story has multiple gods, and that God that created, or those gods who created, are either good or great, but they're not both. So the question then becomes, if a good, great God created this world in perfection, what happened? And the Bible's answer is very simple. It's us. He created it. But if you want to know who made it, what it is today, look no further than the end of your nose. Those created in his image, who were to bear his likeness to the world and who were to uh, extend his sovereignty over the world, who were to rule over the world that he created, were the ones who created the mess. From there, from that point forward, there's always been a notion of looking for a Savior, one who will bring justice and peace and recreation and renewal. Noah was the first prospect in many ways. His name actually means, this one will give us peace or rest. I would say that given that 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 happens in Genesis 5 and by Genesis 9, there's nobody left on earth except for Noah and his wife, his three sons, and their wives, it didn't really work out that Noah brought rest or peace, did it? Or did it, ultimately? And it depends on the time horizon we have in mind, and and, and that's a big issue, and it's one that we have to get settled in our own minds, and that is, is your horizon bounded by the span of your earthly life, or is there another horizon where a descendant of Noah will give peace and rest? Jesus came to assure us that that horizon really is as real as the horizon of the span of our lives. Abraham, after that, becomes the man of God who will bring the blessing of God to the world, right? He's going to bless the world. So go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you, and I'll make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in all in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, Abraham managed to create and sustain a family, but along the way he created, well, this other family that would create enmity like that of Cain and Abel, and is true even to this day. So the question would then come, well, so just as did Noah fail, did did Abraham fail? Well, it would appear so in many ways, because at the end, there was little to show for his faith. He had one child through whom the covenant would be carried forward, and he still had no home and possessed no land. Abraham, however, saw that other horizon. He saw it when he measured God's faithfulness to the promise that he would be father of many nations and that his descendants would be as countless as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. He believed God, and his faith was counted to him as righteousness, and that was even before there was an Isaac. Did Abraham fail? One of the things that Jewish uh, tradition believes is is that at the end, uh, at the resurrection, that that all will be gathered together in the land of Israel, and and the last people— To be resurrected will be Abraham and Sarah, and and it seems a little odd that they would be last, not first, but the reason they say that is because it's at that moment that they then will see the fullness of God's promise as they look across and see all those descendants, all those who belong to the covenant of the living God, and that will include us. And so the first thing that they will see in resurrection is the fulfillment of God's promise. That he always believed would be true after centuries in Egypt a family was given into slavery there and they cried out for God's deliverance and God called a man called Moses to be that man Moses was reluctant to take the job but God gave signs that Moses accepted and agreed to be God's man initially when he when they crossed the Red Sea after God parted the water so they could cross on dry land and Pharaoh's army was swallowed up by the sea they rejoiced in Moses as their deliverer but that was short-lived Soon enough, the grumbling started, as it always does. Ultimately, God rejected that generation, and Moses disqualified himself as redeemer by his own sin. He was not allowed to enter the land either. So what happened? Did he fail? No. He succeeded in what he was given to do. God raised up another man to take his place, a man named Joshua, whose very name means Yahweh is deliverer, to lead them into the land. But even that conquest was incomplete, and the land remained only partially conquered. Ultimately, after many generations, God raised up a man, David, a man after his own heart, a shepherd to lead the nation. The people loved David, but there was always opposition and grumbling even to David. David was promised by God he would never lack a man to sit on his throne. David, however, was disqualified by being a man of war, necessary at the time to complete the conquest. But He was disqualified, nonetheless, from rebuilding the temple because he was a man of blood. That task works for his son, Solomon, whose reign began gloriously, but in the end, his sin tore the kingdom into two kingdoms under his son. From there, one kingdom was taken into captivity in Assyria and dispersed among the nations, and they're the ones we call the lost tribes today. Ultimately, the southern kingdom, the one based in Jerusalem, where David's throne was, that kingdom too would be taken into exile. They would return, and they would rebuild, but ultimately they would not control. They wouldn't be masters. They wouldn't be slaves, but they wouldn't be their own masters either. But through the prophets, during all these years, God continued to speak words of judgment on the people when they fell into sin and apostasy, but also words of life and future and a hope to the people who, whether in feast or famine, in possession of the land or in exile, God continued to speak to his people through the prophets. And all along, there was the promise of this one promise to David, the one who would sit on that throne and judge in righteousness, whose name would be Emmanuel, God with us. The hope for that king, that Messiah, would be fulfilled in Jesus, whether they saw it or not, whether they understood the promise or not. Because they were looking for an earthly kingdom, not an eternal and a heavenly one. There's 400 years then a prophetic silence. And into that setting, a child was born in Bethlehem to a young woman who had never been intimate with a man, a virgin called Mary, to whom God had come and chosen her to be the bearer of his son, the Messiah, this one who would sit on the throne of David. Her husband, Joseph, was skeptical about this story and had determined to walk away from their engagement. And then an angel appeared to him as well, and he said, Yes to his own call to be Mary's husband, the earthly father of the boy they would call Jesus, whose name means the Lord aid. His ancestor Noah was the one they had hoped would give rest. Jesus was the one who would fulfill that. The heavenly announcement of his birth was given to lowly shepherds when an angel came and said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And so they did. When he was brought to the temple to be dedicated at eight days, there was a man there his name Simeon who had been promised that he would see the birth of the Christ. And day after day in the temple, this old man peered into the faces of little children, longing to see through the eyes of God, his child. When Mary and Joseph came with the baby, Jesus Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. He gave an old man eternal hope and a readiness to die because he had seen all that he was promised that he would see. And in the face of Jesus, he accepted that and knew what was to come. His horizons were extended in seeing the Christ. When his time had become to begin ministry, Jesus chose disciples to accompany him, men through whom he would fulfill the mission and those to whom he would entrust the future of that mission. Along the way, he did all the things Messiah was prophesied to do, and yet there were many who refused to believe and accept those signs and him. Others received him gladly as they saw men and women delivered from demonic oppression, healed of various diseases, sight restored to the blind, hearing to the deaf, lepers cleansed, and ultimately, in Lazarus, the dead raised to life. Nonetheless, those who proclaimed him to be the son of David, to whom they shouted, Hosanna, Lord, save us, on a Sunday, were shouting, Crucify him, a few days later, and their will was done. He was indeed crucified, dead, and buried. However, the grave couldn't hold him, and three days later, he was resurrected from the dead to new and unending life. Death was no longer to be feared because it wasn't final. They had long believed in the resurrection of the dead. Well, at least some of them, the Sadducees didn't. But now, it was no longer a thing to be believed without evidence. It was a thing to believe for which God had supplied the evidence. It was no longer just belief, it was certainty. All the promises were fulfilled and life had new meaning and purpose. Anything was possible, and life didn't end at the grave. It was simply an entrance into new life, eternal life. God with us becomes us with God forever. In a new creation where there's no suffering and death, all we know all is as we know in our hearts it should be. In this life, we have suffering and death, but for those who know this child, the one born in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago, there's hope beyond those things. We can understand all that with the same hope a man named Job had thousands of years ago when he cried out, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, he will stand on the earth, and in my eyes, I will see God. That Redeemer is Jesus, and that man, Job, was exactly right. It's been a difficult year in our house, and yet as I sit here this Christmas Eve morning, Suzanne's listening to the service of Lessons and Carols from King's College in Cambridge, England. Those glorious songs of praise for this child, this Jesus, bring tears to my eyes and joy to my heart. He lives, and because he lives, so does Will, and we will see both of them again, and we will never part. He, Jesus, is the source of all our hopes. I can join with Simeon in hope, and I can join with the apostles in the proclamation of that child, because God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that all who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That proclamation is inspired by love for the world God loves and a desire to see his kingdom come because he's good and great. The way that I love my neighbor as myself is to want for my neighbor the same thing God's given me, hope and a future. What would a world look like if Christ did not come? The world was quite literally transformed by that, coming as those kingdom values have been applied to civilizations all over the world. I saw firsthand the power of that in Rwanda, where in 1994, in a 90-day period, approximately 800,000 men, women, and children were murdered by the fellow countrymen because they were from a different tribe. How could there be any measure of justice and reconciliation after so much evil? How would you possibly bring about justice and reconciliation when people had killed about 800,000 people and, and nearly the entire nation participated in that slaughter? How could you possibly bring justice and reconciliation in that? When we first went there, we saw uh, groups, huge groups of people in uh, pink, what looks like short uh, pajamas. A- and I-, I learned very quickly that those were prisoners. And-, and there were thousands of them in Rwanda in 1999 when Suzanne and I first went there. We saw them everywhere we went. Is, is that the way to bring about justice? Ultimately, the answer to that is no. The, the answer wasn't in tribunals and executions and trials and um, imprisonment. It was this child, this Jesus. There was a Belgian social scientist named Gerard Prunier who wrote a book called The Rwandan Crisis. And I read it on the way there the first time that Suzanne and I went in 1999. And I was astounded because Prunier, see, wasn't, wasn't just content with documenting the genocide. He wanted to understand how people could move on and be reconciled to one another. How could they become a nation again? And and Prunier, I was reading this as we're flying over from uh, London to Kigali, and what I saw that that he ultimately said, there's only one solution, he says. Someone must die. And that's a direct quote. He saw that killing... To scale of the perpetrators wasn't the answer. One person would have to be the scapegoat for all, and in that, he believed reconciliation would happen, and he was exactly right. But it wasn't a person of superlative guilt whose death could accomplish that reconciliation. It was the death of the only innocent man who ever lived, this child, Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection, together with the ascension to the right hand of the Father, made possible the outpouring of the Spirit on all flesh, which then makes possible reconciliation. Why? Because it makes possible the rehumanization of the other and the potential to rehumanize myself. It's the recognition we're all created in God's image and that we are all alike sinners saved by grace through faith in the name of Jesus It means I see in myself the same capacity for evil, and I can extend to you the grace that's been extended to me. And in that, there's great capacity for reconciliation and for good and for justice, ultimately, because we know that all justice is accomplished at the cross. That it's not justice that's done there, because that's the greatest injustice of all time, but it brings about reconciliation between God and man, and one human and another. As we begin to see that we are the guilty and he is the innocent and he bore our sin. He took the punishment and the judgment of God on sin upon himself in order that we might receive his righteousness in his life. And it's in that where we can begin then to be reconciled one to another, even though we have grievously sinned against one another. What would my life look like today, this Christmas 2022, eight months after Will's death. I don't know. I don't want to know. Because I'm certain it wouldn't look like it does. Because I have a hope that's completely founded in the incarnation. The life of Christ. His death, resurrection, and ascension and the knowledge. He'll come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will be established and it will have no end. If he, Jesus, had not come into this world, I wouldn't have that hope today. So today, I celebrate with all my heart that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. And God bless you this Christmas.